Savior Community Church, it's so good to worship with you today. Uh, thanks, Reggae, for leading us in worship. Uh, it's just so good to worship with you. Um, just the only thing better would be to physically be with you, but obviously that's not possible. Thanks, Pastor Rand uh, and, uh, and you guys again, Savior Community Church, for having me. I know that this is a church that respects the pulpit and really holds it to a high esteem, and so it really is an honor to be with you today. And um, preaching in front of a camera, you know, people have been asking me, you know, are you used to it? No, I'm not, but it's the best that we can do, and it's still a blessing to be able to worship to this capacity, Um, and so I'm excited to be here. Uh, Before we get into it, uh, I'm just going to pray for us real quick so that we can get into the Word. And so, God, we need you now so much. And Lord, it is, it is a fight more than ever to get into that place, to get into your presence where we can hear from you. So God, help us to fight the temptations to be distracted. Help us, Lord, to, to give our affection, to give our full attention to the preaching of your word, not on my account, but because, Lord, it is your word. And so we need you now. Show us Christ Show us Christ intensely and clearly and allow us, Lord, to walk away from this repenting and a desire to obey you. So, Lord, lead us now, and in Christ's name we pray, amen. You know, I'm, I'm super thankful for Pastor Rand. Uh, Pastor Rand has been a mentor and friend and a gospel partner uh, to me for a long time now. And Pastor Rand has been one of my key guys when I have a question about ministry or theology. But in particular, when I have a question about the Bible, I just need someone, the plain old-fashioned, just break it down for me. What does this mean? Interpret this. I, I, like, I'm confused about this. And he's one of my key guys. And so I'm thankful for him. And honestly, I believe that Savior Community Church is super-duper blessed to have Pastor Rand because um, it, just his gifting and just kind of uh, his knack for ministry, he's just... Um, he just devotes his life to biblical ministry, living it out and preaching it out. And, and, um, and time to time, I drop in Savior Community's uh, 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 online sermons, and, and, I, and I hear what Pastor Rand has to say. And, and man, like, kudos to you guys, because he's the beast at expositing the text. I mean, one hour of basically wrapping his manuscript at that speed with that amount of content. Listen, I'm a seminarian, and I can't even, like, hang with that. So kudos to you guys. You guys are hanging in there with this preaching, and it's awesome that you guys are doing that. Um, I will not be doing that today. <laughs> um, not like Pastor Rand, at least. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. First, um, I can't. I can't literally talk that fast, that much for an hour. Um, and, um, but all joking aside, um, the reason I'm not, well, this is a psalm. We're looking at a psalm today. In particular, we're looking at Psalm 27. And, and of course, you can exposit the psalms. Uh, of course, you can look at the original language. Of course, you can look at the cultural and historical context. And you can look at literary devices. You can do all of that, and that's good. But what makes the psalm so unique compared to most other texts is that there's almost always an emotional context. There's almost always a very humanistic perspective that we have to uh, use to interpret the text. Uh, John Calvin, the great reformer, wrote a commentary on the Psalms, and he says that the Psalms are like an emotional mirror. 
He says the Psalms are like an emotional mirror. And what that means is that the Psalms are so emotionally complex and they're so rich with human thoughts and feelings that whatever kind of emotional season that you're going through, you can find it in the Psalms. And that's very important to understand. Not too long ago, uh, I, I was walking down a street and, and, and it was in L.A. somewhere and <clears throat> it was kind of in the middle of, of uh, it was just in this urban area and there's all kinds of tall buildings and, um, and it's just like building after building after building and it was blacked out windows and clear windows. Uh, but whatever it was, uh, I, I would walk past these windows and, and I remember looking at the first window and I saw a reflection of mine. And, and I couldn't help but to gaze at that window. And if you're like, oh, you're so arrogant, all of you do the same thing. Let's just be honest. And I'm looking at that, and I'm like, man, you know that Ephesians 2 tense text, God's workmanship? I'm like, this is God's workmanship. Like, I'm looking at this reflection, and I'm like, what's cooking? Good looking? Right? And I'm doing, hey, this guy, right? Like, I'm like, you know, I'm looking at this window, and I'm like, I think you dropped some weight. You're looking good there. So I'm feeling really good about myself, right? I had a little moment of, of, of like thanking God for just the creation that he's made me to be. And I'm like, man, this is a good day. And so I walk to the next building and I look at the window again just to get another glimpse of myself. And it's a completely different picture. What I saw in the first window was not what I saw in the second window. I go to the third window and the fourth window and the fifth window. And I realized that the first window was a deceiving window. You know what the Bible calls Satan, like the deceiver? This was a Satan window reflecting at me a lie about who I was because it was one of those windows that made you look tall and skinny. Deceiver, right? And so I realized that that window was false and all the other windows validated the truth that that wasn't me. But I'm living in denial. I'm like, no, it's got to be the first window I go to the second, third, all the way to the tenth window, and I'm like, no, that can't be true. Silly, right? The point of a mirror, the point of a reflection is to be self-aware. And if you're going to be self-aware, you have to be honest. the, The point of a mirror, I mean, there's no point in looking at a mirror if you're not willing to be honest with yourself. See, why is this important? David, who wrote this psalm, he's going through a really tough season. It's hard to say for sure what exactly is happening in his life. Some commentators say this was a time when he was running away from King Saul. Other commentators say it was a time when he's running away from Doeg the Edomite. Either way, the truth is David is in a lot of trouble. But in the midst of his trouble, he just exudes this confidence And it's not until we look in our spiritual mirrors and we're honest with ourselves that we too can glean from David's life experiences and also live with confidence in our own seasons of difficulty. And so we're in Psalm 27 today, and I'm just going to hone in on verses 1 to 5. And so I'm going to read first Psalm 27, verses 1 to 5. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise 
against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. So here's what's happening. David says in verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? You're probably familiar with that text. We have worship songs about that even. I think our tendency when we read the Bible, especially when it comes to popular texts like this, is that a lot of us, we kind of see this as this super lofty kind of a verse, and it feels like it's just hundreds and hundreds of miles away. And what I mean is, you know that there is truth to this text. You know that there's other Christians who believe in this text, and you see it on coffee mugs, t-shirts, and you know that it's good, but for some reason, it just feels so far. And so the real question that you're asking is, well, how can I get this verse into my life? There's this disconnect. I don't really feel like the Lord is my salvation. The Lord is, the Lord, or the Lord is my light and my salvation. Right, so if we read verse one, right, again, this is a mirror. King David says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is a stronghold of my life. That's very different from the Lord is the light and the salvation. That's very different from the Lord life. You see, David is doing a very, he's making a very personal confession. It's not just true, but it's true for him. And so when you say, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I? You can't say that in an ambiguous way. You can't say somewhere miles away, it's true for someone and it's true for these people. But if it's not true for you, then, then there's a disconnect there. Savior Community Church, is the Lord your light? Is the Lord your salvation? And here's the challenge. Don't lie. Don't fake it till you make it. It's a mirror. Be honest with yourself and be honest with God. Because maybe your personalized confession isn't the Lord is my light and my salvation. Maybe your personal confession is more like Where was my light and where was my salvation when I really needed it? Maybe for you, your confession was, where was my light and salvation when this person in my life who I love so dearly was diagnosed with cancer? Maybe your confession is more like, where was my light and my salvation when my parents just had enough of each other and now they're talking divorce? Where was my light and salvation when my so-called community abandoned me and never sought me out when I really needed it? Where was my light and salvation when I lost my job because of this stupid virus? Where is my light and salvation? You see, church, here's the reality. If God isn't your light and salvation, then something else is. This is a mirror. This is a mirror, so we have to be honest. When you go through hardship, where do you run to? Isn't that what light and salvation is? 
When I say hardship, it can be the kind of life-threatening thing. Sure, that's what David's talking about. But it doesn't have to be a life and death situation. It could just something, it could be something as simple as you just had a really hard day. You've had a tough season. You're experiencing brokenness in, in multiple areas in your life. So when that happens, where do you run to? Maybe for you, maybe for some of you, your light and salvation is to numb yourself. We live in a culture where we are inundated with entertainment. I mean, half of our lives, if that, is in front of a screen in one way or another. We love our Netflix and video games. We love our social media. We love anything that involves a screen. It's to the extent that if the screen is taken away, we don't know what to do with our lives. We numb ourselves with entertainment because it's an escape. This screen becomes my light and my salvation. Maybe for some of you, your light and salvation is people. And if you go to church, then it's about the church community. It's about the church people. And the difficult part is that we need community because we're created to be communal. But at the same time, the difficult part is, well, we can easily then make it an idol. And so when that happens, one day we love community and the next day we hate it because it has somehow failed us. Maybe for you, if you're like me, you don't numb yourself. You don't necessarily make church community an idol. Maybe it's you. At times, my light and my salvation is me. I try to control things. I try to do things in my power to make it, to go, make it go the way I want. And then what happens is, well, why can't this person just do it the way I want them to do it? Why can't church be this way? Why can't work be this way? And then I implode. Savior Community Church, what is your light and what is your salvation? And so right away, verse 1 sets us up for the rest of the psalm. Okay, so Pastor Howard, I hear you. It's like Calvin said, this is a mirror. I need to be honest with myself and I need to be honest with God. But the thing is, I actually do believe this. I actually do believe that God protects me and keeps me from harm. I actually do believe that God is my light and my salvation. And I can honestly confess, whom shall I fear? Well, let's see what David says next. He says in verse 2, When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Now pay attention to this. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. So David brings up some really extreme scenarios. He says evildoers violently attack him. When he says, eat up my flesh, that probably means, hopefully he's not being literal, but he's talking about his wealth and possessions, right? They're being taken away and they're, and they're ruining his life. And then he says that an entire army is getting ready to attack him. He says, war arises against him. And honestly, I may not know what it's like to have an entire army against me, but I, knew, I do know what it's like to live in fear, right? And this is the emotional context, right? I do know what it's like to be lonely and feel like I'm abandoned. I do know what it's like to just struggle and go through painful life seasons. And so if I'm gonna be honest, I do pray like a good Christian should, but it's the content of my prayers that will really show what I believe. 
So we're going to skip verse 4 for now and come back to that. Go to verse 5. For verse 5, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. So notice, David doesn't say that God will shelter him from the day of trouble, but in the day of trouble. Very nuanced, but huge. Do you know what this means? It means that the Bible assumes that you as a Christian will face trouble. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. When does the Christian face suffering and pain and struggle? As American Christians, we tend to live by a certain kind of theology. And when push comes to shove, that theology comes into conflict with biblical theology. As soon as we face a little bit of discomfort, a little bit of pain, a little bit of wilderness and darkness, we have these knee-jerk kind of reactions and we cry, something is wrong, this isn't supposed to happen. And so the theology that we have to pay attention to is everything has to do with the promises of God. And if you're not grounded in scripture, you can live your whole life believing that God has promised you something when he really hasn't. And for whatever reason you believe that God has promised you this and you don't even know why you believe in this promise, really what happens is, is you, 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 it's important for you to be self-aware about what you believe about God because when God doesn't deliver this thing, then you get into this, well, something is wrong. God is punishing me. This isn't right. Uh, I thought God was supposed to protect me. I thought God's, God was supposed to be my light and my salvation. So what's happening? I don't understand. And so what we have to understand is that our functional theology, not biblical theology, but the theology we live it out, that we live out is this. If I trust in God, then nothing bad will happen to me. But biblically, that's just not true. So if this psalm isn't about keeping you from trouble and it's not about God protecting you from difficulty, then what is this psalm about? Even in difficulty, in trouble, in famine, in heartache, and loneliness, if you trust in God, he will protect what is most important about you. It is what makes you you. It is your identity. It is your self-worth. It is your salvation. King David is saying that you can be in some of the most dire and painful situations, but you can be rock solid in your confidence if you make God your light and your salvation. But even in all that, here's what gives David his confidence. Verse four, one thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Even with all these crazy hardships that he's going through, there's one thing he goes after. He says, to dwell in the house of the Lord so he can gaze upon his beauty. So hear me when I say this. How is it that David can say all of this through all the hardship that he's going through. You see, it's not despite of the hardship, it's because of the hardship. It's not despite the hardship that he can do that, but it's because of the hardship. He can honestly confess it's God's beauty that he's after. 
When you see the ugliness of the world, the beauty of God becomes more important to you. You see, the point isn't to lie about your spiritual life and your doubts and your sins. The point is to go through the struggle and to be honest about it because then you'll actually be able to see that there's nothing better than God himself. What exactly does David mean when he says, gaze upon the beauty of the Lord? I'll be honest. Growing up in the church, I just simply don't remember uh, going through sermons and going through church and Bible studies, learning about the beauty of God. I remember in youth group, uh, I literally never talked about the beauty of God. And maybe my youth pastor talked about it, but I just kind of knocked out or dozed off during the sermon. Maybe that was it. I remember in college, my college pastor talked about the beauty of God once or twice, and I still didn't get it. And I remember post-college, my EM pastor talking about the beauty of God, and I acted like I got it, but I didn't get it. And then somewhere in my 20s, in my own kind of sanctification, I was listening to some sermon that wasn't even about the beauty of God, and then it just clicked. And this is for me. Like, I'm, I'm listening to a sermon that has nothing to do about the beauty of God, and then I realized I didn't understand the beauty of God because God wasn't beautiful to me. I didn't see God as beautiful, and therefore, the beauty of God, just it didn't make any sense to me. The reason why God wasn't beautiful to me was because God was convenient. God was utilitarian. God was my benefactor. God was a way of getting what I really wanted. And so David is challenging us here. The beauty of God, what does that mean? Do you love God for who he is or do you love God for what he gives? Gazing upon the beauty of the Lord is about loving God for God. And so this radically changes our view of faith because gazing doesn't just mean busy church work. If you go to church and you read your Bible and you do whatever God wants you to do so you can get something out of God, you're not gazing on God's beauty, you're using God. Another translation says, that David is saying, experience the beauty of the Lord. Experience the beauty of the Lord. You see, when this word was used in the Old Testament, we got to understand something. They didn't have Google and they didn't have Wikipedia to look up from a third-party perspective what it says about God. When they gazed upon God, it wasn't looking at someone else's blog or someone else's uh, Instagram about uh, uh, their experience of God. It was an actual first-hand encounter with God and his beauty. You see, when David talks about experiencing God, we have to understand there's a big difference between knowing God and experiencing God, both essential to the Christian life. But David here is talking about experiencing God, and he says that in Psalm 34, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. So let me give you two scenarios here to help us understand this. First scenario is this. You go online or you go on YouTube and you look up how to cook a steak. And, and I love steak, and, and I could speak from my own experience in this. Uh, you see guys like Gordon Ramsay. You see guys like Jamie Oliver. You go to channels like Munchies or Bon Appetit or, or wherever it is that you watch, and you educate yourself. You're getting your learning on. Um, I learned a ton just from watching videos over and over and over. Um, and when it comes to steak, you learn about the cut of the steak. Steak isn't just steak. Come on, that's for noobs. There's different cuts of steak. You see the marbling of the steak. 
you know how the steak is cooked, right? And then you see pictures of a perfect sear, top and bottom, and it's a pink blush all throughout. You see, this is you knowing what steak is. Here's a second scenario. You make a reservation at a steakhouse. You sit at the table and you soak in the environment. You soak in the service. And then finally, after your order, you see that steak show up on a plate and it's sizzling. You smell it. You see it. You just, you just sense the goodness of it. And then you cut into it and you take that first bite. And it's like, oh, so good. You see, taste isn't just the seasoning, right? Taste has to do with texture, right? And they say that taste even starts with uh, your visual. You look at the steak and then you're stirred up in your affections to pursue this steak. That's how it works, right? And before you take your second bite, you take that glass of wine. Mm Hmm, I think this is a red wine, right? And you take a sip, right? And you're like, oh, I'm gonna go in for another bite. And then you taste it and you experience it. So see, church, here's what I'm getting at. What's better, the first scenario or the second scenario? Second scenario, obviously. The first scenario informs the second scenario, so we need the first scenario, right? But it's not, it can't just be about knowledge. It has to be about the firsthand experience. Any day of the week, any day of the week, you choose the first because no one says, hey, P.I., do you want to come over? They call me P.I. at my church. Pastor Howard, you want to come over and look at pictures of steak? I'm like, no, stupid. I want to eat steak. That's what it's about. And so what boggles me is this. Why do so many of us settle with the first scenario when it comes to worship? When it comes to this time of consecrating that time to be in the presence of God, why is it that we just want to soak in the knowledge, but then we push away the firsthand experience? And here's what I mean. See, if you've been going to church for a long time, worship and prayer become a habit, which is great. But there's dangers in that because the dangers of making worship and prayer a habit is that we can get lazy with it. We lose a sight. We lose sight of what we're really doing. A local church pastor said this in one of his gatherings. He said, it's kind of funny, and I hope I'm not offending you when I say this. He says, uh, you know that someone doesn't have a good prayer life when their prayer life starts with, dear God, thank you for this day. <laughs> I feel bad for saying that. I feel like it's kind of true, but not. Right? You know you don't really have a good prayer life when you say, dear God, thank you for this day. Now, disclaimer, if you are genuinely and passionately thankful for the day that God has given you, Go at it. Be thankful for that. Okay, but I'm just speaking from my experience. See, when you start a prayer that way, dear God, thank you for this day. Help me to just live out your glory. You know, you just kind of threw up these religious words. I think, there's, I think we're missing something in that. See, the point of, that he was making was this. He said, prayer shouldn't be, God, I thank you for this day. He's saying, dear God, I need you today more than anything else. This day, God, I need you. I'm not even thinking about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Today, I need you. Not tomorrow, not next year. Today, I need you right now. When I look in this mirror, God, my honest heart says, you are not my light and my salvation. And something is wrong with that. So God, I need you to show me right here, right now, that you are my light, you are my salvation. Put it in me so that I can say, whom else shall I fear? That's what it means to look at this as a mirror. See, here's what I'm saying. When you worship, do whatever you have to do to get into the presence of God. 
make it the most important thing that when you are in God's presence, your spiritual senses are up. You are listening for God. You are listening for God and you are allowing that to be a platform where you're not just throwing up religious words, but you're opening up that channel so that God can communicate his heart to you. And, and, and I say this all the time, ever since this COVID thing and ever since we've been doing online services, like I hate saying this to my church people, but I feel like I have to. Um, I tell them all the time, set up, like get rid of the distractions. We're so tempted to be on our Instagram and to, to sip our boba and to be texting our friends during that time. And then the worship just becomes knowledge as long as I'm hearing it but then you miss out on the first hand experience and I tell them all the time the only thing you're allowed to text is Pastor Howard's fire today that's the only thing you're allowed to text apart from that do whatever you need to consecrate that time and to be in his presence I mean isn't that what David is saying the one thing I want the one thing that is better than anything else is to be in God's presence to gaze and behold his beauty when you start to really listen for God and you sense his movement, the spirit empowers you to worship God so that it is a two-way street. Don't you want to hear God's voice? Don't you want to sense his movement? Isn't that what it means to experience God? This is the source of David's confidence. In all his mess, in all his trouble, He doesn't say, take away the trouble. He doesn't say, change my circumstance. But he says, I want to be in God's presence more than anything else. Let me just close with this point. I know I'm kind of repeating here, but verse 4, he says, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. When I read that, I know this is kind of silly. Maybe it's just, just kind of me, but, you know, I think of church. He's talking about worship, so I think of church inevitably, and I think about, for some reason, uh, Jesus is sitting on his throne. Like at my church, I'm, I'm literally imagining Livestream Christian Reformed Church. Jesus is at in Artesia, and he's sitting on the throne at Livestream Christian Reformed Church. And maybe for you, you can imagine that Jesus is sitting on the throne of Savior Community Church. And, and, you know, it's just kind of that picture in Revelation, right? Jesus is sitting on the throne, and it's the masses gathering, just worshiping, and it's a really cool thing to think about. And, and, and when I think about that, and maybe my imagination is going too far, I think, okay, well, reggae isn't leading because there's some high and fancy angel probably leading on some crazy electric harp that sounds better than anything else. I'm not preaching. Pastor Rand isn't preaching. Why? Because Jesus is on the throne. Like, we're not going to preach about Jesus when you can just look at Jesus. That's, like, dumb. You know what I'm saying? Open up to the word of you. Okay, I'm done, right? Like, what, 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 what am I going to say? You know what I'm saying? And so I'm dwelling in the house of the Lord. That's the picture that we're talking about. And it's awesome. But here's a really simple observation that I see here. King David is not at Savior Community Church. He's not a Livestream Christian Reformed Church. And not only that, but David doesn't even know who Jesus is. He has some picture of a forerunner. He has some picture of a coming redeemer, but he doesn't know Jesus. He doesn't even know the New Testament. David is living in the Old Testament, which means what? It's all about the temple. It's all about the sacrificial system. 
When you're living in the Old Testament, it's absurd to think that you can just stroll into God's presence and dwell in his house. The fact that some of you can wake up on a Sunday, stroll by Starbucks, get your coffee, and maybe even stroll into your online live stream service 20 minutes late, and still engage with worship, and still engage with the community of God, that's completely, completely absurd to the Old Testament worshiper. Why? Because God is holy. How can you possibly dwell in the house of the Lord? Pass by the house of the Lord? Maybe. Have a priest go into the house of the Lord for you? Maybe. But to dwell in the house of the Lord, that's absurd. You see, we need to remember this. King David and his Old Testament context tells us about God and what he's done, and the fact that through Jesus, we now have this 24-7 access to God himself, the veil torn, that intensifies the beauty of the Lord, that makes us desire God so much more now, because he's actually there. When David says that he gazes upon the beauty of the Lord, what does that mean for us? We gaze upon Jesus. Jesus is the beauty of the Lord. Hebrews 1, right? The exact representation of God. You think David is lucky or super spiritual because he says all these lofty things about God. Church, we have Jesus and David only wishes he can dwell in the house of God like we can. Church, who is your functional light and salvation? When you're in seasons of difficulty, where do you run to? My encouragement to you is that when hardship comes, do whatever you have to do to get into the presence of God. Experience firsthand his goodness and let that be what fuels your confidence and your ability to get through hardship. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this word because it stirs in us a desire to be in your presence. And sometimes, Lord, we forget that. And it is easy to glance over truth and to glance over your word and just act like we get it when we really don't. And so, Lord, we need the knowledge of you and the truth of you, but we also need to experience you. And so help us in that. Spirit, we invite you to stir in us a desire to be in your presence, that we have fuel, that we have a sustenance to get through the difficulties of this life. So we thank you for this word. Help us to apply this in our lives. And in Christ's name we pray, amen.